Good afternoon, and welcome all of you to the 2018 Reich Hour Lecture here at the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University. The event today is co-sponsored by Harvard University Asia Center, the Korea Institute, the Mittal South Asia Institute, and the Reichauer Institute for Japanese Studies. Uh, I'm Michael Sony, and I am the director of the Fairbanks Center. It's a great pleasure to see so many uh, familiar faces here on this beautiful autumnal day, as Wang Wei might have said. <laughs> the Reichauer Lecture Series was established in 1985 to honor uh, uh, our distinguished senior colleague Edwin Reichauer by celebrating his distinguished contributions to the study not only of Japan, but also of China and Korea. As a reflection of Reichauer's research, the series is intended to highlight current scholarship that deepens our understandings of East Asia as a region, as well as its parts. Today's lectures, or this week's lectures, present a rare opportunity for our community here to enjoy the considered scholarship of a mature and accomplished scholar. It also sets up a challenge to that scholar whose argument must span geography, time, and discipline. We're watching. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, our list of past speakers to the, at this lecture reads like a who's who of Asian studies over the past 30 years. Uh, just to name a few, they include Ted DeBerry, Nancy Steinhardt, Akira Irie, Susan Greenhall, and Ezra Vogel. And today's speaker, of course, thoroughly deserves a place on this list. Stephen Owen, for an audience like this, almost needs no introduction, but I will borrow from the citation uh, of the Tang Prize with which he was honored this year. He is the single most important scholar of Chinese classical poetry in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. As James Bryant Conant, his university professor and professor of comparative literature emeritus here at Harvard, Stephen Owen embodies the pinnacle of academics, academic achievement and service to the field. His recent complete translation of the works of Dufu was a feat that the Harvard Gazette referred to as the equivalent of translating nine pounds of poetry. <laughs> About the same weight as a bowling ball or an overweight cat. <laughs> this extraordinary feat of translation not only makes a canonical text accessible to the English-speaking academy, but it is also an open source translation, freely available to download, meaning that it is accessible to the world. The text is the first volume in the new Library of China Humanities series, uh, which Professor Owen founded to make important works of Chinese, make important Chinese texts and their translations available to the world. Professor Owen's translations are but one play in his broad intellectual repertoire that spans almost every period of Chinese literature. As a scholar of Tang poetry, which like Professor Owen's own career, represents a golden age of cultural production. His rich list of publications include a four-part complete literary history of Tang poetry, culminating in the late Tang Chinese poetry of the mid-19th century, which appeared in 2006. As the author of 12 monographs, four edited volumes, and 80 articles so far, 
It's a great honor to invite Professor Owen to present today and tomorrow's lectures. We're also honored to be joined by two discussants for uh, these two lectures, uh, for this year's Reichshauer Lectures, uh, Professor Michael Hewitt, who will serve as discussant today, and Professor Stephen West, who will uh, uh, fill the honors tomorrow. Today's discussant, Michael Pewitt, is Walter C. Klein, Professor of Chinese History and Anthropology, and also Chair of the Committee on the Study of Religions here at Harvard, with interests that span the intersection of religious religion, anthropology, uh, history, philosophy, perhaps others. Uh, Professor Pewitt's research locates China within comparative frameworks that inform a greater mutual understanding of Chinese history. He's the author of The Ambivalence of Creation, Debates Concerning Innovation and Artifice in Early China, and To Become a God, and To Become a God, Cosmology, Sacrifice, and Self-Divinization in Early China. Uh, as well as the author of the, or the co-author of the recent smash hit, The Path, What Chinese Philosophers Can Tell Us About the Good Life. Uh, Professor Pewitt's class on Chinese philosophy here at Harvard is regularly one of the uh, university's most popular, rivaling computer introduction to computer science and introduction to economics. Uh, and it, I always find it just extraordinary to have a colleague who is a Chinese philosopher named as one of the professors of the year uh, in 2017. Uh, as we searched for uh, an appropriate line from Dufu to summarize this year's Reichshauer lecture, it occurred to us to turn to Professor Owen's own translations for inspiration. This white-haired old man instantly shocked people by the thousands. We thought, though, the connotations of the distinguished white-haired man falling off his horse while drunk <laughs> might, might set the wrong tone, so we're not using that one. Uh, not to mention, of course, the prevalence of white-haired men here at Harvard. Uh, similarly, the immortal advice given by Dufu, when you do what you want in human life, humiliation usually follows. <laughs> didn't give us really quite, didn't really give us quite the tone we were looking for. Instead, as the aim of the Reichshauer lectures is to highlight the breadth and depth of a mature scholar's research, Perhaps Dufu's reflection on his own life will serve as a reflection of our admiration on today's speaker. Please join me in welcoming Professor Stephen Owen. Thank you, Michael. I think they've probably said enough, and I can just stop now and go back. Uh, <laughs> I think the oh, that's, the nice thing about doing the Dufu translation is the magic at the end, where you take nine pounds of books and you turn them into something as utterly weightless, <laughs> which is the digital version. <laughs> I'd like to thank the Reichshauer Institute and all the other centers <laughs> For, their, for the Reichshauer lecture and this invitation and the chance to speak. Uh, I know the people are saying, what the hell are you talking about? And Michael just said, yes, you have to talk about all the way through history, every culture in East Asia, and crossing several disciplines. Uh, well, we're doing some crossing here. 
Um, and I'll try to explain what I'm talking about in a moment. It's <laughs> closer. Uh, let me begin with a concept that's often used in linguistics and literary studies, a concept that I'm sure some of you know at least, and many of you probably know. This is diglossia, the presence of two languages within an utterance. Or in a language without strong foreign uh, infusion, two registers, one high and one low, in an utterance. It's more than simply their presence, but what happens on the interface between them, how they are mutually positioned by the other. Now, of course, in East Asia, which is a language world of diglossia, if ever there was one, the obvious examples are Japan, Vietnam, and Korea. Now, with significant triglossia, third languages and fourth languages, I remember when, a long time ago when I was in Japan and we looked up at the character for milk and pronounced it miruku. I thought, how can you pronounce a Chinese character with an, you know, a guy go reading? <laughs> but that's what happens. I'm particularly thinking, speaking particularly of those language situations that foreground the difference. Most languages have diglossia from other languages. Certainly the English language exists that way. China has a set of terms from Sanskrit, more recently from English. The rather large lexicon it got from Japan uh, earlier in the 20th century is now totally invisible, and most people don't know that, in fact, it comes from Japan. So that doesn't count as diglossia, unnoticed and unheard. But in Chinese, diglossia are usually terms from the past with a certain authority set against the overtly vernacular usages. Now, since thought is mediated by language, diglossia offer an interesting case of different kinds of truth, or can be deployed for different kinds of truth. Okay. And I was looking for what we call a degree zero of diglossia. Now, this, of course, in haiku, you can't use Chinese loans, but just the flavor of Isa's somewhat sent him, Kabayashi Isa, this is the year of my life, 1819, on the death of his daughter, Sato. It's perhaps sentimentality, but the, the form of the sentimentality is rather interesting. Not true, like Lossi, but close. And I think I'm translating, that's how, I'm, yeah. Just trying to get away from the old translation. You just. In, it's hard, you can't translate Japanese literally, we know that. But it's one sentence. Okay. We have an authoritative claim. Not given as a claim per se, but a phrase presuming an authoritative claim. This is a world of do. The world is transient mutable. It's a general claim which applies to all people and everything. It's complete and final. But the haiku opens it up. You can virtually almost see the usual deployment of kana here, and kanji and kana. Kanji first for tsuyu and yo, and then kana for everything else. The claim is qualified subjectively. This may be true, but it's no, conf no consolation. This comment may be true of many people, maybe all people, but the comment is not a universal one. It's made in special reference to the speaker, 
this case Isa, but possibly any speaker who used it uh, on the death of his daughter. The stable term here is authority. Sometimes the exemplary or model story. This term resists innovation and differentiation. It's one flavor of truth. The second term is the variable, deviating from the normative term, sometimes nuancing it, sometimes confounding or opposing it, and true in a different sense. I'm less certain about the Korean case, forgive me, Carter, <laughs> but the case of Japanese is a basic version of the form, a language of diglossia. It's often, in fact, that you know, the Chinese terms from Chinese disappear entirely into the language, but it's very easy to foreground the difference between the native part and the Chinese loan part. And the Chinese is often a foil, authoritative, for the Japanese, which comments, supplements, nuances, and sometimes undermines that authority. This is common to most languages using diglossia. The combination of two languages are levels of language. One is authoritative, a foreign or a classical language evoking the past, universality through transnational uh, spread. The other is either the native language or the indigenous vernacular, precisely the point where the classical seems to be inadequate. Now I want to consider this on the level of story. And here I have to be embarrassed in front of Ed Cranston, but I'll do my best. Uh, uh, let me offer the Kiritsubo chapter of Genji, built around an analogy between Tang Xuanzen, Lady Yang on the one hand, Yang Guifei, Yokiji, and the Japanese emperor and Kiritsubo later on the other hand. Now, except for, actually, the horrible truth is, except for the fact of the emperor doting on one woman, these two stories have absolutely nothing else in common. They do not belong together. Right? Um, and you, we should note that the analogy is presented not as mere Murasaki's own. Murasaki doesn't say, this is the analogy. She attributes the analogy to characters, agents in the story. The Chinese model is Baijui's Hakurakuten's uh, Changhanga and all the lore associated with it. There, the Chinese emperor for Yang Weifei was, in the context of surrounding history, taken as the central factor in the collapse of the empire in the Anlushan Rebellion. Now, petty gossip in the Japanese court uses, or I think more properly abuses, the Chinese model to attribute political peril to the emperor's attraction to the Kiritsubo lady. One supposes, uh, all these people are all readers of the Genji, and they would know Changhanga. I mean, the readers of the Genji would know Changhanga, and they would know that the Japanese case is not like the Chinese case otherwise. For example, the Kiritsubo lady has is imperiled precisely because she has no males of her generation inside the court. Whereas the point of the Xuanzong and Yang Weifei story is that she gets all her relatives, male relatives, in power. And that it's the way in which imperial power is diffused to the wrong people through doting. That's the problem, not doting itself. Um, so doting is 
China case does threaten its own right, but the danger is the distortion of imperial judgment as it spreads to male family members of the beloved woman. Now, compared to the courtiers and court ladies who <coughs> compare the Kirutsubo lady to uh, you know, Yang Weifei, the Japanese emperor is actually a much better reader of Chang'e. He always notices how Kiritsubu lady is not like Yang Weifei. Every statement says, if only this, he looks at her, her the hair gifts he gave her when she was alive. He says, if only this were the hairpin that you know, Lady Yang sent back from the other world. You know. But of course, it is not. He says, um, I wish I had a wizard to go bring me word of what she's doing now. And he doesn't. So the Japanese emperor is reading the classical text with the aura of the past of China becomes not the blueprint of what has or will be, but something to measure against the present, noticing what differs. The authoritative or classical story of Shanzong and Yang Guifei is not only the recurrent universal model, the story itself is based on Yang Guifei as an immortal goddess and the vow made by the pair to be together lifetime after lifetime. By contrast, in Genji, people die. Don't come back. But that fact, of course, makes, opens the way for the return of the Kiritsubu lady in the person of Genji, who keeps the story going. And eventually, through the imperial, the imperial line, through Fujitsubo and through Genji himself, so that Kiritsubu lady actually does come back and hold the whole thing together. Return and repetition of the super mundane world of the Chinese story reappears as a returning in the genetic of the genetic image in this world. Now these talks grow out of a question I've been asking for about the past decade, and still I'm thinking about. When does some Chinese literature become classical? We talk about classical Chinese, and it wasn't classical Chinese to start out with, it was just Chinese. And I'm pretty sure through the Tang, mostly it was just Chinese. At some point, it became classical Chinese. And of course, that's obvious when that happened. It happened when there was something that was not classical Chinese, sitting there right next to the classical, so that the classical sounded old-fashioned, stuffy, but very grand and august. Okay? In this world, we have this, our little moment in Genji, is not just as a monumental work of early Japanese literary narrative, but as a discursive form discovering itself partially by not being like the authoritative Chinese model, received from the past and overseas. We're essentially talking about those moments when different levels of language, thought, or position meet. And what happens when that meeting occurs? One level is familiar, comfortable, old, already known, the other level is intrusive and uncomfortable, or as in the Genji's case, with consequences yet undecided until afterwards. Many things happen around this moment. Sometimes the intrusive power, a lower element, is repressed. Sometimes the lower element wins, overthrowing the hegemony of the classical. Sometimes as the Genji, each finds its own appropriate place. Now, Although the classical term of the pair usually bases itself on 
on something that claims to be primordial in the Chinese tradition. This is also as partially an irritation to every person who's given this talk in, to a group of Chinese scholars, be they foreign or... Uh, and you say, this first thing time this happened is here. And the hands go up. <laughs> and they say, no, 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 it happened in the Song Dynasty. Somebody else says, no, actually, it happened in the Tang. Somebody else says, no, it happened in the Six Dynasties. And finally, the last person, really, it's in the Shijing already. <laughs> so that's what I mean. Certain kinds of utterances lend themselves to this kind of critique. That's the authoritative classical side. Right? Ancient Chinese texts, which don't have classical Chinese, are nothing if not relentlessly serious. They're constantly making claims of authority. They are nothing if not authoritative, with a certain merchandising intensity that allows not the least twinkle of irony or questioning. In this ancient discursive world, there's only one exception, our beloved Zhuangzi. And I think it's no exaggeration to say that the Zhuangzi uh, resistance to authoritative discourse is central to the Zhuangzi, including mocking his own resistance to authoritative discourse. He's happy doing that. His genius and comic irony should prepare us to take a fresh look at some of his statements that seem authoritative. And I want to begin with one of my favorite things, which is a good thing about two different kinds of languages. A parable that is a joke from the Da Sheng chapter. And I'll read the translation since this is the Reichshauer election. <laughs> Duke Huan was hunting in the marshes. Guan Zhong was his charioteer. The Duke saw a spirit being there. The Duke took Guan Zhong's hand and said, do you see anything? Guan Zhong replied, I don't see anything. When the Duke got back, he was out of his wits and did not come out for several days. A gentleman from Qi, one Huang Zigao said, and I have to do Huang Zigao very specially, the Lord is causing himself harm. How could a spirit being harm the Lord? When a congestion of the humors dissipates without coming back, then we have an insufficiency. If the humors rise, do not settle down, that makes a person prone to fits of rage. If they settle down and do not rise, it makes a person prone to distraction. If they neither rise nor settle down, but occupy the mind and the body, then it causes sickness. Uquan is listening to this, sort of, it comes straight out of Moliere, actually. Duquan uh, said, but, but are there really spirit beings? <laughs> Huang Zigal said, there are. And now he's learned his next body of received knowledge. In the ditch, there is the Li. In the stove, there is the Qi. In the waste inside the door, the Leiting lives there. The ones at the foot of the northeast corner are the Bei'e and the Walong jumping around. At the foot of the northwest corner lives the Yiyang. In the waters, there is the Wangxiang. In the hills, there is the Shan. In the mountains, there is the Kuei. In the wilderness, there is the Panghuang. In the marshes, there is the Weisha, the Duke said. Tell me, what does the Weisha look like? Wangzi said, well, the Weisha is about as big around, I guess, as the hub of a chariot wheel. And as tall as the chariot shaft is long. It has a purple robe and a red hat. As a creature, it hates to hear the sound of a carriage wheel, excuse me, rumbling along. 
What it does, it lifts up its head with its hands and stands up. Whoever sees is about to become overlord of the feudal domains. The Duke broke into a great smile. That's what I saw. <laughs> At this, he straightened his cap and robes, took its seat, and before the day was over, he wasn't even aware that his sickness had left him. Of course, this is one of these great Zhuangzi stories. And even in our own world, so far away from pre-Chin China, the medical, technical medical discourse of ancient China makes itself quite obvious in this, with the humor is dissipating. Huang um, Gaoao is the good rationalizing healer. He, does not, he does not believe that sickness can be caused by spirit beings. He's reciting a good imitation of Warring State's medical knowledge. When the Duke interrupts him with a certain urgency, but are there really spirit beings? And Huang Zagao shifts to an equally authoritative recitation of every spirit being he knows about and where it lives. Uh, cut short again by Duke Huan, who's found the spirit being he wants to have seen, a being whose appearance assures that he will become overlord among the great nobility. Of course, the Duke cheers up, and illness leaves him. The humor is partially in the reversal of power. The learned Huang Zagao is supposed to be in the position of authority. He's supposed to tell the Duke how it can he be healed. He's the man who can answer the questions and heal the sick man. But the truth turns out to be what really heals him is what, God, what Duke Huang wants to hear. Okay? That turns out to be the successful, successful medicine. In other words, the duke is healed only because he interrupts the discourse of authority and then because he chooses the answer he wants. The fact is that he is the social superior permits the reversal of the master-disciple role. Now, the pieces of the Zhuangzi, particularly those in the Waipin and Zapin, are certainly not all by Zhuangzi, but they do illuminate one another. If Duquan hears only what he wants to hear, well, the readers of Zhuangzi often also read only what they want to read and ignore the comment that calls Zhuangzi's own authoritative claim into question. Which wins out, the authoritative-sounding word or the last word? An interesting question. The question arises in the most famous passage in relation to language. Now, a lot of these authoritative sections all have what are called chengyu associated with them. That is, there are set phrases in Chinese that exist as an answer to everything. Right? The bait is the means to get the fish when you want it. Uh, let me see, do I do you still use the I use Graham's translation? I think. Oops, no. Let's see. Get the fish where you where you want it. Catch the fish and you forget the bait. The snare is the means to get the rabbit where you want it. Catch the rabbit, you forget the snare. Words are the means to get the idea where you want it. Catch on to the idea, and you forget the words. Where shall I find a man who forgets about words and have a word with him? This text is virtually an allegory of the issues we're discussing here. We have an authoritative claim and a subversive addendum. The speaker of the authoritative claim is the impersonal wise man. The speaker of the subversive addendum speaks as a first-person subject. 
the authoritative claim includes and invites the chungyu, the commonplace in language. Get the meaning and forget the words. That's what you learn. It sounds like the final word on the matter, even if it pronounces closure on the whole process of understanding. Once you get that, you're all, it's all over. This is the quotable claim that survives. Readers have been inclined to take this last statement as a message. Not only have they been inclined to do so, what is taught in Taiwan, the mainland, they do not teach the last sentence. <laughs> because that really would cause all sorts of rude questions from the students, right? They don't like that last sentence. Um, the, is it the message? Are these readers all like Du Quan, taking the interpretation they want to hear? The quotable claim is all that young people learn, as I said. The scholars of Zhuangzi know the last line is there. And the avoidance of commenting on it is astounding. I think this one tongue commentator that tries to explain it away. And those, they take it basically as a gratuitous joke. It certainly is a joke. I'm not sure it's gratuitous. Scholars of the you know, they can't conceive that it's saying what it seems to say, that after discourse is over, it continues, um, uh, rather than silence. And if those of you know who know, we have read a lot of Zhuangzi, you know Zhuangzi hates silence. Uh, sometimes, certainly hates dead things, meat. Right? This is about this is a passage about meaning as meat. <laughs> There's a, you know the beginning of Qi Wu Lun, where the master goes to sleep, loses himself, spirit disappears entirely from the body, which is like dead wood. The disciple comes up and says, "My gosh, his spirit has left the body. The body is like dead wood." And the master wakes up and says, I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs> but proceeds to discourse and losing the self. Zhuangzi is undoing himself. Um, so meaning is alive in the words. And of course, when we come to the famous wheelwright bin, we find that written words are the words of the dead. The sages have dead words. Now we'll come back to the wheelwright bin later. We see here the pattern suggested above, an authoritative claim, often the past that's remembered and repeated, and we have the supplement, which does something different. In the Genji chapter, it complicates and nuances the authoritative model. Here the comments potentially subverts the authoritative claim. The temporality is interesting because the authoritative claim has priority in several senses. It always comes first, it always seems to come from the past, it always was true, um, and it's the one that's remembered, right? This goes with unchanging China. The supplement is a circumstantial response, limited to an occasion, open rather than final. In the Zhuangzi anecdote, the speaker pronounces a permanent truth, the way meaning works, the supplementary comment is on how the speaker on a different level feels about the truth enunciated. Now, let's consider this form in terms of diglossia and linguistic register. The obvious version is the transnational classical put together with a local vernacular. 
This is explicit in the Genji example, but even there in the uh, Isai, it's, you know, Chinese terms are quite mar remarkable. You know, they're not Chinese terms, the, the difference is quite remarkable. Du Fu was probably the first poet in China really to love to use mixed registers. He talks about things you're never supposed to talk about, and he uses the most elegant um, Chinese to right before it, he shifts into the low register. There's one that I should, was going to think of using the famous chicken coop poem, where he has a son build a chicken coop. Needless to say, there is no other, this is the earliest chicken coop poem in the whole Chinese language. And as far as I know, the only chicken coop poem in the whole Chinese language, where he starts and says, here I've been lingering on, but my lingering illness. And he says, for my illness, they, I need a black chicken. This is the first time the wuji, the black chicken, ever appears in the Chinese language. <laughs> and he, of course, he makes a problem because he lets the black chicken, he's eggs of a black chicken. So what he does is he leaves all the little chicks alive in springtime so that suddenly he has way, way too many chickens. He talks about the chickens coming into vast flocks into his house and pooping on the mats. And you think, this is Chinese poetry? <laughs> But the mixing of high and low is wonderful. And I have, you know, one more. Dufu mixes registers. It's remarkable that the long and copious tradition of Chinese commentary on Dufu never once mentions the diglossia. Never once mentions the fact that you have, you have a mix of registers here that is really shocking. And here's one I've talked about before, but I'll just put it up. Firing and smelting my spiritual nature. What have I got? Well, I shouldn't say what have I got. You know, fire, firing and smelting my spiritual nature. What do you got? That's basically what it's doing. It suddenly drops down. First time the word di wu, di wu is ever used in Chinese. We know later on it's a very vernacular phrase. Suan is a very vernacular use of that suan. I can show you how it appears in some. They finish revising my new poems. I chant them out to myself. Well-versed in the two shes, I'm getting pretty good. I really try to learn the yin kang shin. I concentrate terribly hard. Dufu's talking about writing, composing poetry. The first line is a shocking diglossium. The four-character phrase is, first it talks about self, you know, self, you know, just, what am I forgetting the word? Self-cultivation, that's the word. I always think of gardens, you know, cultivation. Anyway, and then that becomes applied to poetry conventionally. So it's a very lofty term. And then, of course, you got the vulgar, what have I got? Okay. Now, the more sympathetic reader of Dufu would see immediately the Dufu's impulse to bring the lofty and classical into the close at hand. The classical offers the universal process of self-cultivation. The down-to-earth poet learns bit by bit on, from models from his predecessors. And there's no doubt Dufu is smiling here. However obvious it may be, sequence is essential to this process. The high term, the putatively older term, the recurrent term comes first. This is the easy, satisfying truth, which the additional discourse qualifies. Qualification can be nuancing without negating the first term. 
can call the first term into question. With a fish, trap, and rabbits analogy for language and meaning, the additional sentence suggests that the still satisfying explanation may not be all there is to it. The one way to understand this is a margin of acceptability. And I think this is important. It's all right to subvert an authoritative claim, but you cannot negate it. You can't say no. It's now a right to att attack it. <coughs> Meng Zhao was probably one of the most unloved poets in the Chinese tradition, and he would do this all the time. The Book of Documents, human beings are the most spiritual of all things. And, of course, for nothing it's, they say that the man is the most spiritual. His white bones lie in tangles every which way. Those of you who know the poet Wilfred Owen know the famous lines, that old, talking about the First World War, that old lie, dulce decoris pro patria mori. It is fitting and proper to die for one's country. Yeah. It's an old lie. Well, it doesn't work in Chinese. Critics didn't like the explicit, sometimes sarcastic, rejection of texts with authority, particularly texts with almost scriptural force. This did not often occur, but when it occurred, it was in form something like this. This is important because throughout the history, we see the reiteration of the authoritative component, conservative impulse that's so satisfying, modified in some way by a deeper, more insightful knowledge, but one that lacks such authority. Now, the most common version of diglossia, with the low register following the high, is closely tied to the ideology of the vernacular as it appears in song lyric. There is a poetic section in a high register with the closing lines breaking into the vernacular. The vernacular almost erupts into the poem. And if in an earlier version, the high register presumed impersonal authority that applies to everything, here it's often the woman seen from the outside the final vernacular section has the woman speaking, what's really going on in her mind. She spe her speaking out is transgressive, but with none of the discomfort of violating a canonical claim. Rather, it's a smile elicited. And this language of poetic reserve seems to collapse in the outbreak of natural feeling, angry or impassioned. We see this pattern already in the Dunhuang lyrics and in Five Dynasties song lyrics. It invokes a standard image of the woman longing for her absent man, her feelings revealed in visual surfaces, gestures, through knowledge of the omniscient narrator. At last it comes to what the woman says, in more colloquial language, in which suppressed feelings are revealed, often scolding. Now, here's an anonymous poem to Nangudza. Beyond, behind the embroidered curtain, a lovely woman lies asleep. Poetic setting. The pup in the yard barks frantically, and the maid servant says, the master's back. He's helped off his splendid steed, dead drunk. Now here she comes again. She comes from behind the screen, straightening her hair like piles of cloud. Right there's the... And sheds tears of love as the orioles sing. 
You've been messing around with someone else. She says, I have not. It's obvious you've betrayed me. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the vernacular pops up at the end. as you know, this dialogue. Uh, this pattern is repeated over and over again. And like a Laurel and Hardy mo you know, movie, it always works. You know, these cartoon things that you bet somebody hits somebody on the head and everybody always laughs, even though you know it's going to happen. Well, here, this always works. It's the basis of natural feeling breaking through. Even in later song lyric, a highly vernacular phrase is often reserved for the end. Now, the dog is not in many of the drunken husband, just, it is in many of them, but not all of the drunken husband returns poems. This is a type of poem, but it's often there. Sort of the double of the natural sound, the barking dog and the woman saying, you've been messing around with somebody else. The poetic the dog, of course, cannot speak vernacular, but it is a vernacular dog. <laughs> a, a pup, wolf. Uh, what happens now? This is a moment of vernacular culture. I would not suggest there was no vernacular culture before it, but its appearance in juxtaposition with elite representations allows it to appear as such. You can see the vernacular, you hear the vernacular, spoken as vernacular. Don Huang's stuff is loaded with vernacular, but unless it's put together with classical, you don't see it as vernacular. The proper response is a chuckle, acknowledging that everybody knows this is the way things really are. But the one is not supposed to say so, the wife berating her errant husband. Imagine writing a classical essay on saying, it's all right, women and men are equal, and if a man violates certain things, the woman is going to yell at him, and that's natural and proper. You can't write that essay. No matter what you do, you're not allowed to. But you're allowed to say it here. Right? You're allowed to, to happen here. And what I will be talking about you know, also tomorrow is what you, that allowance, that forgiveness to say things you cannot say in classical Chinese. That only by saying it in a different way does it have a space to be spoken. But never as a claim. A general claim. Okay. What's he doing here? I'll return to the argument that this is what we call sensus communis, the word, the Latin term for common sense. I decided to go back to the Latin term because common sense sounds universal. And I'd like to argue that the common sense here, sensus communis, is historical. That at different times through history, what people take for granted as all right or take for granted as true has changed. And I will talk next week probably about intellectual history and how this probably is the most fruitful way to think of intellectual history after a certain time. That is, what things are happening and are taken for granted as normative when you can't possibly say them as claims. Okay. I mentioned earlier how the first line, final line of Zhuangzi's theory of language and meaning is generally either omitted, overlooked, or discounted. The turbulent second term of the pair often challenges the authority of the classical first term. It is imbalanced, a challenge to authority, and there are strong forces at work 
to return discourse to the blander form of authority. Now, what I'm talking about here is a kind of poem which happens all the time. They've done this poem over and over and over again. Woman sleeping, husband's drunk, coming back late at night, too late. Those of you who know Sushir know that Sushir comes back. He's not drinking with women, but never does that, but he comes back late. Um, the servant tells the lady, the husband's drunk, back. And then what happens next? There's lots of different things that will happen next. And I'm thinking about almost parsing. The eruption of the vernacular is the obvious thing, yelling at him. Like, look, look what a little, probably a little bit later than the drunken husband returns here. Evening mist veils the mossy pavements. Oh, we're in poetic Chinese land now. The gate, gate of the great house still has not been closed. All day long he's been drunk, away seeking spring pleasures. As he returns, moonlight covers his body. He left his saddle, his arms around the girl with embroidered sleeves, and on his kerchief fallen to the ground, a tangle of petals stuck. But what thing most upsets the lovely lady? The mark of, marks of lipstick fresh on his robes. And somehow the ability to speak, to yell at this guy, who had messed around with somebody, disappears as silenced and reappears as the marks of lipstick on the clothes. It's aestheticized. You can see this pattern also, where the breakthrough is shut down. Anger is repressed behind an aestheticized surface. Now, Yin uh, has silenced the wife in the lyric above, but a lyric to Pusaman, he sees an alternative to both yelling and to passive endurance. Clouds over the slopes merge darkening. Autumn skies are white. By the window, she sits alone, peering into this misty path. At the edge of the wall tower, the horn blows repeatedly. Then in the dusk, he returns drunk. He's wild and incoherent, hard to talk with him. And she's sure that tomorrow he'll be off again. When he gets his horse to go out the gate, she won't give him his golden riding crop. That is, she's going to take action now, keep the guy home, because he can't go out without his proper attire. She neither simply endures nor yells. She rather manipulates the situation so that he can't go out. Noisy yelling is avoiding. But instead, there is the woman as a domestic jugulian, achieving her will by strategy. You can't write that in classical either. <laughs> All we need to do is substitute the saddle for a riding crop, and we have one of the most famous lyrics by the lyricist Liu Yong. And it's important because this was almost the touchstone of violation in the moral regime of the 11th, late 11th century, actually. Oops, back this. Oh, okay, sure, it goes that way. Okay, ever since spring came, with its dreary greens and gloomy reds, my loving heart feels blah at everything. When the sun rises over the flowering branches and orioles thread through the willow fronds, I still lie there pressing on scented quilts. My warm lotions melt, my glossy tresses hang askew. All day long I feel ennui, too wary to comb my, tie up my hair. What can I do? I hate how that 
once that unfeeling man left, there hasn't been a single word. I regret at the very beginning not locking up his well-wrought saddle away in his study. I would have given him only paper and ivory brushes confined to his poetry lessons. I would have followed him everywhere, never let him out of my sight. Idly fingering needle and thread, I would have sat by him, and together with me we would avoid letting youth's time pass by in vain. Now, this is particularly interesting because an old story, it's probably almost certainly not true, has Liu Yong getting in trouble with the emperor. So Liu Yong then goes to see a famous lyricist, person who writes song lyric, Yan Shu, who is also one of the grand ministers and the favorite of Renzong. And a lot of Yan Shu's lyrics are far more erotically charged than this thing. This even has a Tang poem behind it. And Liu Yong introduces himself. He says, and Lian Shu says, Are you the Liu Yong who writes lyrics? He says, yes, even as you, sir, are Lian Shu who writes lyrics. And Lian Shu said, Well, I never wrote a line like idly fingering needle and thread, I would have sat by him. And it's sort of a lesson here. What is the violation? Why does that line bother the moralist so much? And I can't really quite be sure. I mean, people often translate as cuddle up to, but it's not. It's simply Zhuo, <laughs> sat with him. It may be letting you into the domestic scene, but most likely I think it's the keeping the guy, controlling the guy by locking away his saddle and company him, staying, keeping to his place rather than her place. You can't say with certainty. Now, Liu Yong became the hero of vernacular culture. He's the talented bad boy. Some people hated him, and they really, really hated him beyond all measure. And some people adored him. He became one of the real heroes in vernacular culture. Wang Zhuo, I'm writing in 1140s, describes his lyrics as wild wolf drool, based on the theory that if you want to drive someone crazy and loony, you take meat, you put it in a, in a crock, you bury it in the ground, the wolf will come and drool over it. Then you feed the meat to somebody else, and they'll go totally crazy. <laughs> and so all the lyricists who write like Yo Young seem to be infected by him. In the increasingly moralistic world of the early Southern Song, song texts were policed, and those found wanting in morals were simply allowed to disappear. Huizong's reign had been an age of racy lyrics, and once their most famous authors have now been almost entirely lost. There are those who survive, in only a few pieces, survive in anthologies, whose editors tell us explicitly they've left out everything that's racy. We look almost in vain for the raciness which they were so condemned. Now, Cao Zhu is the baddest. Cao Zhu is the baddest of all the bad boys. A few of his lyrics were preserved in an anthology of the 1040s, whose author assures us he excluded all the racy lyrics. He seems to have missed one, probably because he read it straight. He didn't read the vernacular as a vernacular. This is a lyric to Zui Huayin, Drunken Shadow of Flowers. The, on the 15th, it's a lantern festival lyric, the 15th of the first lunar month. 
everyone knows the curfew is lifted, everybody goes out at night, and everybody wants to get hooked up and go find boys or girls to sleep with, okay? And there's a, but you never say that too explicitly, except here. Light cold on the nine avenues, still early in spring, lad in sleets of the capital streets. Under the moon, those whose steps are lotuses, ever so thin, their scented gossamer, closely fitting their spring vests are small. Plum beauty marks, lightly applied, brows brushed with the breeze. All along the street, listen to merry laughter. A boundless number of faces, wu shen mian And though they're not the same, each one is equally fine. That's clearly how the anthologist read it. But of course, in this kind of language, Gushri Banhal, it's any one of them is just fine with me. <laughs> so it uh, simultaneously manages to be elite, but if you have a naughty streak, uh, not. I translated the banal way, but I think everybody was reading it in that one. You hear the transgressive bad boy. Sounds like someone has have his father's works published. Some Sung Emperor, Southern Sung Emperor, heard about this, had the printing blocks destroyed. I'm talking here about the segregation of discourses. And the particular problem that's presented by when you put the two together. Now, tomorrow we're going to consider perhaps the finest example of double discourse. I don't know if I want to call it diglossy anymore. One side writes the perfect discourse of authority, producing yet another Chinese Yu. The other side hides behind laughter, but gives us a remarkably sophisticated understanding of the problems besetting the practice of art in a world where aesthetic value and commercial value can no longer be separated. And the fact that everybody knows this. One side can be stated as a claim. The other side, you can't state that as a claim. You can't speak that way. But you can appeal to what everybody knows, appeal to that sensus communis, that shared knowledge. Because you can't read the jokes unless you already understand what's the premises of the jokes, what everyone knows. It's necessary to make sense of the humor. And thank you all. And I will return to the soon all too soon <laughs>
ever seen before because no one actually reads the tradition like Steve does. And again, through beautiful close readings, shows us things that not only by definition we haven't seen before since we've never read the text, but also opens up completely new ways of reading in general and new ways of thinking about old paradigms. And needless to say, today we have seen the exact same thing. Steve has taken a handful of texts, some of them, Zhuangzi, we've all been reading. Others, at least speaking for myself, but I suspect for most of us, we had never seen before. And then through stunning readings, showing us things we had never seen before. And slowly but surely, as the minutes go by, as he takes us through these readings, forcing us to rethink some of our most standard paradigms, and indeed fully living up to the goals of the Reischauer Lecture, forcing us to rethink grand themes in East Asian history, and I would argue very strongly, grand themes in, grand themes in Eurasian history more generally. And let me actually begin with the latter to lay out, I think, the larger implications of what Steve is bringing to us. So here is a standard way of speaking about some grand themes in Eurasia that now Steve is bringing the East Asian side to, but characteristically forcing us to rethink our standard paradigms to explain. But first, the standard paradigms. Beginning sometime around the beginning of the second millennium around Eurasia, a series of what had been dominant classical traditions, written in classical traditions, begin breaking down. And you have the emergence of vernacular literatures across the board. The most famous one being, since we're still in a world where knowledge is so often defined through the Western tradition, the most famous example of this, of course, is the Latin tradition. So, all literature is classical in the Western tradition, meaning written in Latin. Um, some of it Greek, but that's, of course, the stuff that's being read is being translated into Latin. And that defines the entire literary tradition until beginning in those first few centuries of the turn of the second millennium, vernacular languages begin, and slowly you get a breakdown of the classical tradition and the emergence of new vernacular literatures. Recently brought into that conversation is the exact same movement going on in South Asia, particularly through the very, very important work of Sheldon Pollock, where we've seen the exact same thing going on with the development of a Sanskrit tradition playing much the same role that Latin did in the Western portion of Eurasia. Again, intriguingly, same time period, first couple of centuries of the beginning of the second millennium of the Common Era. Again, this begins breaking down, and you have the emergence of vernacular languages in South Asia, sorry, vernacular literatures, excuse me, in South Asia. And of course, as we know, and are now being forced to rethink, the exact same thing is going on in East Asia. You have a classical Chinese literary tradition spread throughout all of East Asia, China, of course, Japan, Korea, Northern Vietnam, and that breakdown begins to occur, intriguingly, same time period, first couple of centuries of the second millennium, and as that occurs, you have the emergence of vernacular literatures. Usually, when this transition is discussed, it is discussed in one of two ways, one of which Steve is explicitly critiquing, the other of which he's implicitly critiquing, but I think it's a crucial part of the argument. The explicit critique is the following. A standard way of characterizing this is in terms of sets of claims. So what is going on is a set of claims beginning, again, 
first couple of centuries of the second millennium, in which you have the claims of immediacy, spontaneity, sincerity, direct reading, direct immediate access, all of which is based upon a claim that a reader can simply read a text in front of him, be immediately moved by that, and the focus is on the sincerity, the immediacy, in other words, the lack of mediation, the lack of commentarial traditions, the lack of a classical tradition through which you would read works, and instead you have direct access and then a tremendous focus on the importance of immediacy, spontaneity, sincerity, sets of claims. Another more implicit critique, but an important one nonetheless, is the more obvious one, which is that people will look at the fact, number one, that things start getting written down in vernacular languages, in different literary traditions, obvious enough. And because of that, people will focus on the, again, correct and obvious fact that you get a spread of all sorts of new vernacular genres. So down-to-earth vernacular genres that begin spreading around. Again, equally true in Europe, South Asia, and East Asia. True enough. And Steve is arguing in both cases, not that that's wrong. I mean, both of those are actually both of those paradigms are obviously correct for what they're looking at, but his critique is to say in both cases they make the same mistake. Because what they are not seeing is the kind of double movement, the diglossia, that Steve wants to bring our attention to. In the first paradigm, the mistake is that you are looking at, well, elite claims. And when you're looking at elite claims, you indeed see very clearly a move from claims of mediation, etc., in a classical tradition based upon the readings of, through a commentarial tradition. And the critique of that is you get the claims of sincerity and direct access. True enough, Steve is arguing, but when you make that argument, it forces you to look at certain things which actually leads you to miss what really matters. It leads you to look at the claims in the classical tradition to mediation, yes, which are obviously there. It leads you to look at the claims in the, the beginning of the vernacular tradition to claims of immediacy and sincerity, which again, are most definitely there. But what you miss in both stages is, going back to the first stage, the fact that you have earlier forms of diglossia in the earlier traditions before they're yet being defined as classical, and you're systematically missing those because you have to find the claim of mediation, the claim of authority, or conversely, when you look at the claims of sincerity, the claims of immediacy, you equally miss the play that's going on because you look for the statements, everything should come down to immediacy, everything should come down to sincerity, missing again the play. And in opposition to both of these paradigms, which share the same mistake, what Steve is offering via the East Asian side is a rereading of the tradition, which, as we will see quickly, opens up a new way of reading this entire shift throughout Eurasia in general, or putting it in strong terms, opening up a new set of questions that I think comparatively we need to start looking at across the board in the development of what in retrospect would be called classical literatures and the emergence of vernacular literatures. And the movement here, again characteristically, is through beautiful close readings of the material. Now, his argument is not that in the shift from classical to vernacular, you are for the first time getting to glossia. On the contrary, 
he characteristically breaks down the paradigm by beginning with, well, Chuangzi. <laughs> it's not that for the first time all of this happens, it's that something special needs to be understood. Hence the importance of a Zhuangzi. As he will note, when we read Zhuangzi, yes, the figure who, of course, we all correctly know is trying to undercut the tradition, laugh at the tradition, and we all quote those statements. And then Steve, of course, will keep note the key moment when, when he makes those statements, Zhuangzi, I'm sorry, <laughs> makes those statements of critique, what we always miss is that next line. The statement that, oh, yes, 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 meaning cannot be trapped and meaning should not be trapped, blah, 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 missing the next statement that it's all about, yeah, someone who realizes this, I want to have a word with them. We quote the first part. In other words, we reread the critique into a claim of authority, missing that second move, which undercuts the claim of authority. In other words, by reading as a claim, we miss the move. And I would actually continue the argument, very much inspired by Steve, to say, you actually see this all through what would later be called the classical tradition. Simply a couple more examples I'll throw into the mix. Um, Sima Chen, when you, after reading Steve, a lot of Sima Chen's moves make perfect sense in this regard. We will quote the key lines where he seems to be making the authoritative statements. Note how often he will make the next statement that we never actually quote that undercuts his own critique of the tradition. Very intriguing. <laughs> you could even argue a lot of the so-called, later speaking, classical texts involve very comparable moves like this. Um, even, I would say, a text as canonical as the Mangza will include these intriguing moments when you'll get the authoritative statement and then Mangza himself is presented as the figure failing to live up to the very ideal just given to you. And of course, it's the ideal that, that you quote <laughs> and you live with. So in other words, what he is saying is, to put it in strong terms, we are reading the entire classical tradition according to the way the classical tradition will get characterized in the post-classical period. We are reading it as claims, authoritative claims, because that, of course, is what has to be undermined in the post-classical tradition. And as such, we're missing the complexity of even that tradition. Then, once we see that, that move, that complexity going on, then the real shift becomes clear. Because the argument Steve wants to make is the real shift, once you move into the development of vernacular, is not simply the fact, which again is true, that you get claims of immediacy, true. It's not simply the fact that you start getting, by definition, your vernacular literatures, again, true by definition. The more intriguing thing is, again, what we're missing. Because even within what would be defined as the elite traditions, what you start getting are these very intriguing moves where the sort of double move, the, the, the glossius, as Steve is calling it, then begins bringing in the vernacular, the everyday, the stuff you're not supposed to talk about at levels that really are not occurring to any significant degree before. You're not seeing that in Zhuang, so you're not seeing it so much in are Most certainly not seeing it in a, in a Mangza. And that, Steve wants to say, is what we need to start paying more attention to. Because once you see that working, then suddenly you realize the stuff that we're still reading as being a sort of continuation of the classical tradition actually is doing something much more complex than we've been able to realize because it's doing this game that, again, we've been failing to see by reading everything as either claim or 
looking at the non-claim stuff, vernacular. Actually, the real shift is not at the level of the claim. It's not even at the level of the fact that there are vernacular literatures. The really intriguing work is actually the work between the two. Once you get something defined as classical authoritative, then being undermined in the very texts that we tend to misread as being either classical or vernacular. In short, what Steve is pointing toward here is a new way of reading this entire transition. It's really arguing that when we even use terms, classical and vernacular, we need to read these as part of a much more complex movement than we've been doing, because again, read as things in themselves or as claims, either way, we actually misread the complex movement that's been going on. And putting this in a broader East Asian frame, as he does, as Steve does beautifully when he begins with his beautiful readings of the Japanese material as well, he's arguing here too, we are systematically missing this incredibly complex play that becomes a dominant part of the East Asian tradition at again, what everyone would now say is a crucial moment in the development of Eurasian literary traditions. So let me simply conclude by underlining the significance of the arguments that Steve is making here. If he is right, and I'm sure this is clear now, I'm convinced, <laughs> if he is right, what this would mean is that we have been under-reading the classical traditions because we've been reading them as classical. In other words, we've been reading them as what they become defined as later once they are called something like classical, which they, by definition, were not before they were so defined. We have been under-reading the vernacular, because again, we're accepting that as a sui generis term, they are vernacular, misreading this complex play, but perhaps much more importantly than either of those points, what we've been failing to do is see the complexity that starts setting in at this key moment, because we've been so caught up with visions of looking for claims, or again, simply looking for the facts of new genres emerging in vernacular languages. And if this is true, what it suddenly means is this entire body of material, Tang Song, or putting it in Eurasian terms, sort of <laughs> 1000, roughly speaking, 1000 AD to something like, you know, <laughs> I mean, it continues, but something like 16th century, throughout Eurasia, all of that work needs to be rethought. What will happen, or rather note what will happen, when scholars across the board in the European traditions, the South Asian traditions, the East Asian traditions, begin taking the questions that Steve is asking us to, to do, begin doing the kinds of close readings on the material Steve is asking us to do, and I think this entire transition that we have been reading through a set of paradigms that Steve is arguing has led us to underread it, suddenly comes to be seen in a new light. And suddenly there are a whole host of new questions to ask, a whole host of new texts to read, and perhaps every bit as importantly, a whole host of old texts that suddenly we need to reread with new questions. In short, Steve has characteristically, when asked, do a Reischauer Institute lecture that will force a rethinking of East Asia, he begins with close readings of a dufu, a chuangza, an extraordinary poem written in Japan about the death of a daughter, a beautiful, beautiful chapter of the tale of Genji, reading them closely, and yes, forcing a rereading of our entire paradigm for understanding, in this case, 
not just a crucial moment in East Asian history, but indeed one of the key transitions in the literary traditions of all of Eurasia. So Steve, thank you, as always, an extraordinary performance. And let us now open this up for conversation and discussion. Thank you. The event is being recorded, so please um, wait until you have a mic before you speak. No one wants to question these claims of authority? Good. <laughs> Um, I don't know whether it's a serious question or not. Um, I, I'm just thinking, what, what if one plays the devil's advocate and say that um, Du Fu in that poem that you cited could not but use the term Di Wu. He could not use He Wu because it's the wrong tone. In other words, um, when, when one uses a vernacular term, can, can it be also a formal matter that you have to use new resources of the language in order to fit the pattern and that happens to be available, does that then turn automatically turn into a question of ironic perspectives which you seem to imply? Nice question. Uh, let's ask the question this way. I return the question this way. What does Ha Wu mean? <laughs> well, I mean, if you ask, you know, when you nourish, you know, you smelt and you know, fire your, your spiritual nature. Ha Wu. Have you ever seen poetry referred to as a Wu before? <laughs> it, it, it has to do with, but I would like to suggest it's more than just the vernacular usage. Maybe that's what I should say. That is, it's using the Chinese language like it's not supposed to be used. And you, you know, sure, later on you can change it. You know, general thing, you know, not really a dongxi, but it's just a, and that's how he's using, you know, di wu. Or even would you have used he wu? Probably it's a little bit less likely to use, it'd be more striking, oddly, to, odd to use he wu. I know, I know he can't use it for the wrong tone. Uh, thank you, Professor Owen, for uh, speaking. That was really interesting. Uh, so I'm I'm wondering. So you talk a lot about y'all are talking a lot about like the Eurasian tradition and sort of this very long timeline um, within Eurasia. I'm from Appalachia. I've lost most of my accents. I'm about to graduate, so I've lost most of it here. To fit in better, but I'm wondering, uh, can this also be applied not only on like a long, long sort of timeline, not only this idea of dysglossia, not only long timeline, not only within Eurasia, but also within the American context in the modern times, not only regional dialects, but oh, sure. ethnic and racial. And this all. is a general phenomenon of language. Okay. And I also lost my accent. Oh, really? <laughs> where, where, where are you from? Arkansas. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, <laughs> and you can put things together. You can do by juxtaposing that in a different. If you put use a Southern accent or an Appalachian accent in the middle of a certain kind of discourse, it's, it sounds very different than if you use it where you you know wherever you come from, right? Well, we have Chengyu too, and oh, sure, everybody's got Chengyu. Just the same. But I think the point is that Chengyu don't often come from a famous text everybody has read, and that doesn't that does circumscribe knowledge. I mean, I'll tell you something. I was raised by my grandparents who were born in the eighteen nineties. <laughs> We got chung you, you know. I mean, is it all? I grew up with more more set phrases that I know what to do with, and I just try to repress them down and then. So yeah, but that's that's limited knowledge. But this is limited knowledge that comes out of a classical you know, red tradition, and those those things don't have. We we can trace their sources, the chung you from Appalachia or what I'm talking about. Um, but they don't have, they're not textual, they're not taught in schools that you read and you hit that phrase. I thought not to talk that way, even in our own schools yeah. in Georgia. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay. I think I'm going to start using Appalachian Chinese in casual Chinese conversation yeah. and see how long it takes before I get busted. You're busted, yeah. You're... Uh, yes. Professor Owens, things you mentioned about Guanzhong, would you please? Tell us about Guanzhong, the legalism, uh, fa, the house of fa, fa jia, and any implication in modern China. Well, uh, this is the this is the minister of Du Huan of Qi, right? Uh, I don't know how the, the implications here. This is only the an example from you know from one person. This is the, the enemy of all legal systems, right? <laughs> Uh, and it's hard to really reconcile this with legal system. Rather, it was very much the medical problem, and the question of medicine is whether you know we're dealing with a world of supernatural beings here that come and cause sickness, or in fact it's all uh, non a non supernatural world of humors, of uh, vapors, whatever, right? And so, Wang Zagao makes an argument which is the standard medical argument which is not with you meet this being this happens but he knows the other one and so when asked about spirit beings he knows a list of them as well but it's, catal it's a certain kind of you know, catalog knowledge where you say something and you can just give the whole list and I don't know if that really fits in with the legal early legal codes <laughs> Thank you very much, our Professor Stephen. And um, you know, our the rhythm is the most important part for the tongue poem. But according to uh, just now, give us an example of Zhen Huang lyric, right? Uh -huh. And I, I I get that. And for example, the like uh, in the in the Zhen Huang lyric, there are some like Shui, Zui, Fei. But I think, according to the English translation, and all these are beauty of our rhythm, nearly disappear. So I, I think the translation only describe the story or narrates the, some things. Well, there's in a the little poem. bit of it. The registers. I tried to preserve the register. You can't do the rhythm. You can't do. Yeah. So um, so I just want to know when you when people translate our poem into English, how could they balance the 
meaning and the. I have to answer as I answered just recently in Taiwan, and now I've come to answer all this question. How can you, a speaker of Mandarin, I presume, <coughs> right? How can you read Tang poetry in that awful language, which preserves none of the sounds, none of the rhythms, <laughs> you know? And a Cantonese speaker, they can, they can do it because they at least have the differences. So that this illusion that, in fact, what you've learned is to take and to read Tang poetry, and that's helped you define the sense of what's beautiful in Mandarin. It works the other way around. It's not that the Tang poem is beautiful, but rather that teaches you a sense of beauty, even pronounced in Mandarin. In the same way an American can read Shakespeare and find it very beautiful in the rhythm, when it sounds nothing at all like 17th century English, <laughs> right? So that it's, it's a more, the relationship between sound and meaning, or sound and beauty, is more complicated and more historically grounded than we often are willing to admit. Um, I think you have to get a... Oh, Steve first, then Feyran. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, I didn't or, see. Go ahead, Steve. Steve. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, well, now as John Cleese would say, for something completely different. Um, I, I find this interesting because there's a curious parallel between what you're talking about and what Desertot talks about in terms of the way that space is read and the way that resistant narratives are created by political groups within certain space. <laughs> In, in the sense that there is, <clears throat> you can accept the reality of either one, but deny the truth of the other. And it allows for a certain kind of mixing of language within that space, which can be both uh, mainstream political language, but can also present at the same time the resistant narrative of peoples who are um, in suppressed locations. He uses, um, Indian tribes in southern Mexico. But the, the point is not about it being resistant, but the point is that there has to be a certain kind of amalgam and a voice for both sides for this to happen. Yeah. And that's different than the printing of that voice in some way. I'm just curious because this, there is this wonderful parallel here between the way space is read and language is used within, for instance, the dramatic scene of the guy coming home drunk the particular places within that particular space require a certain kind of language that would be understood by people who are participants. Yeah, but language is, is there's a, the, the play of, yeah, the coming home story is not actually very common. You know, and when you don't, once you do this, you have the you know, domestic space which has been violated in some way. Oh. Away. I mean, I just wanted, I'm trying to think, but you do need the two, in, you need the two together and we have to be framed together in order to have conflict, resolution, or anything. If you don't have them both, it's gone. Then the, then the vernacular becomes a dominant discourse. Hey, Ryan, did you want to? Yeah, I, I, my question is kind of uh, related to Professor West's question too. Oh, it's about yeah. the, um, the, the, the purpose of the intent of of 
of this um, phenomena. Obviously, this is something we have observed, um, the juxtaposition of different um, uh, registers and mix of um, registers and dictions. Um, I was wondering, um, how should we interpret the such 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 a phenomenon we have observed. Sometimes I think it happened inevitably. So maybe the the writer he himself does not even notice he's doing this. Some it, it happens in some of Dufu's poems. He does not really, yeah. Um, it just because he most of those kind of poems appeared in the later time when he was cut off from the um, uh, 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 the, the 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 community, the poets community, and. For other cases, I can imagine, for example, in the Southern Song, we have those Yulu, the masters, they use this kind of um, vernacular language to create some, um, it, especially immediacy, to, to better convey the message. Um, but sometimes, um, did they, so what, I, what I'm trying to say is that this, whether the writer is conscious, whether he's, I don't know if that's something we certainly can't know that. We cannot tell if the right. The question is, is, is this done consciously? Yes. I think not. I mean, I think, for example, if you want you learn what humor is first, and you find that humor may involve mixing of registers. You don't think I'm mixing registers, but you do mix registers. Okay? So that and we are attuned to noticing that. But when I stand up and I, there's two kinds of responses. There's a laughing, and there is saying, and this is funny because it mixes registers, <laughs> the analytic. I don't think Freud uses the word, but when he talks about what makes a joke a joke, yeah. he's basically talking about diglossia. Diglossia, yeah, yeah. Displacement. I ask you to translate this back into Western languages for my sake, but I know you know a lot about Western poetry. Can you can you map a distinction between, say, Petrarch's language and Dante's? Dante is Dante operating with this kind of linguistic, I don't know, creativeness that you've been pointing to in a way that, um, I mean, Petrarch's great, but, and Dante is very different. Is how would you see this sort of distinction, this breaking away from a classical in the Western tradition? Italian, as you know, at this stage is inventing lots and lots of new words. Italian, Italian, and various any all of its dialects are inventing new words all over the place yeah. from Latin. The same thing like Milton, you know. You and when you invent words. Then you notice things that you wouldn't notice if you stayed in a lower register, you know. Now, the case of Dante is, especially Dante, is going to be really complicated because of uh, uh, Occitan. Whereas they've got a lot of words coming in from Occitan. And he uses that language, certainly not so much in the, in the Commedia, but in the, in the, certainly in the sonnets and everything else. And so you're playing again with the... Do you know, you know, let's give another nice example of this. Um, you know about the Galician stuff. Now, the Gastamigo, the Candidastamo. One of them is all in Petrarchan language. Another, the dictionary of Occitan, you know, troubadour language. All 
with its various, you know, Galician equivalents. The other one is always pure, straight Galician woman speaker. I mean, you guess Domingo, right? Uh, male speaker in Catagasta War. Something like the gender distribution of Japanese. See the play on diglossia and creating the bring things in. Native language, you have made these the whole new genre, you made the genre. Okay. Steve, the I've been I've been <coughs> thinking actually for the last few minutes of, of the questions about what are the different contexts in which diglossia appears in our world? And it occurs to me, one is that diglossia is often a feature of good teaching. It's one of the techniques that good teachers use, um, which means, of course, that good teaching is like good poetry. We've had both from you today. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you very much. Um, please. Uh, rejoin us uh, at the same time tomorrow for the second of the Reichshire lectures, and uh, please join us outside for uh, refreshments and informal conversation with our speakers. Okay.